Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bark Night Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Bark, and I have here with me today Paige Leindecker to talk about horses and Western movie culture. So, Paige, you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Paige Leindecker. I work with Patrick at Arolia, now Saffron. And I grew up in the north country of upstate New York on a beef farm. And I was raised showing horses and breaking horses and throwing hay and mucking stalls. And my ancestry dates back pre-Revolutionary War. Um, my family came over from what's now modern-day Switzerland. And we settled in upstate New York and we've never left. And the small hometown that I call home uh, is where, you know, my family still is and we take our heritage farming heritage logging heritage very seriously and we're very proud to be uh like part of a working class community and we love our animals and i have always been drawn to horses i think i was born with the horse bug as my mother calls that and i've never been able to be without them uh, it's something that I feel really passionately about. And, you know, horses for me are a symbol of what society used to be. You know, a uh, hundred years ago, every single person in the United States owned a horse. Uh, and rich people owned automobiles, and now it's completely the opposite. So we'll be addressing that today talk when we talk about Western movies and TV shows and horse culture today in the United States and beyond. Awesome. So yeah, just like Paige said, we uh, we work together and we've had a lot of conversations about movies and about what shows we're watching and all those sorts of things. So the way this conversation kind of came about is that we were talking about the TV show Yellowstone and she was filling me in on some of the... Uh, Really just like historical background and some of the, the, the competitive background um, that goes into creating a show like that that revolves so much around horses, around ranches, around um, just that, that whole culture. So, I mean, that's what the show really is, is all about the culture. So, um, you have competed in competitions, right? Yes, I grew up... Uh, showing horses at fairs and you know county shows all across New York State but I also had the opportunity to travel and show uh, American Quarter Horses that's the breed association that we showed under and uh, you know that's one of the things I want to talk about in the episode today that during Yellowstone you see really famous horse trainers, famous reiners, famous cutters. And we'll talk about that terminology and the differences between horses that compete in Western shows versus English shows versus, you know, breed, different breeds, paints, Appaloosas, quarter horses, you know, and why they're so different from thoroughbreds and standard breds. And uh, there's different equestrian sports for each different breed. And there is some crossover between Appaloosas, Paints, and Quarter Horses because uh, Appaloosas are descended from Native American 
uh, the horses, and they're the ones with all the pretty spots. And whereas paint horses are the ones that literally look like they've been splashed with paint. And those two breed associations are color breeds. So you're specifically showing under that coat pattern color, whereas quarter horses can be any color. Um, and there are instances where horses are double registered or triple registered under those three organizations. Uh, there's also instances where horses are, are triple or double registered, like appendix quarter horses. So I owned an appendix quarter horse who was a granddaughter of Secretariat, who was a very famous thoroughbred racehorse, perhaps the most famous. It depends on which horse person you ask, but she was, you know, 80% thoroughbred, but she was registered in a quarter horse association. So when it comes to Yellowstone and the reining horses and the cutting horses that they're bringing into that show, they're very famous studs. They're very famous uh, trainers and training families. And when the show came out, the equestrian world was like, oh my goodness, Baba Villa is on Yellowstone. He's on TV. You know, other people outside of the horse industry are going to not know who he is, but he's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Like, very big deal. They're like, they see me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that's a, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to break down in what everything that you just said that I guess from a perspective of somebody who doesn't really know anything about any of that, uh, there's a lot of terms being thrown out there. So we figured a good place to, to kind of start the episode was for, um, almost like a... A breakdown of like a glossary of like main terms <laughs> of like all right when you say these things this is what that means when you use these words so you want to take a moment to kind of go over a few of those yeah so that as uh, as we talk about a few of these things myself and anybody else listening that isn't a horse person understands what you're talking about absolutely so in episodes in Yellowstone, they do uh, competitions in the ring. You know, they're doing their sliding stop competition where the horses are running at full speed and then sliding and and hitching their back legs and sliding through the sand on command. Yeah, that was a really interesting scene. Yeah, and that is a, what a reining horse does. Uh, in competition, <clears throat> they... they um, you know, measure how long the horse slides for, how quickly the horse stops without really seeing any uh, cue from the rider. Because most Western horses, now I'm, it's not for every Western horse because barrel race horses are not trained this way, but most Western horses that are working cow horses on ranches are spur broke. And that term is used to describe the spurs that are on your boots, when you uh, click your spurs into the side of your horse, the horse does not move forward, it stops. Um, some trainers, you know, will train their reining horse to stop where they, they throw their legs out, and that's the motion to start sliding, whereas other trainers tense up, and then that's when the horse knows when to stop. And it's really, truly just a preference you know some trainers will train spur broke some will not i had a horse uh, my most recent show horse uh, his name was intentionally lazy 
and he was the son of Lazy Loper, who's a very famous Western pleasure stud in the quarter horse industry, and he was for broke. So you could ride him with no bridle. And if, if anything, he preferred that. And what is a bridle? A bridle is the headset, the head pieces that go on, on the horse's head, and it's a, and they are attached to the bit that's in between the horse's teeth. Okay. Inside their mouth. So uh, when that scene in Yellowstone happens, uh, you'll see that... And if you rewatch the episodes, you'll you'll see like, oh wow, you know, the horse's movements are so fluid. You know, they're only using one hand to steer because the horses are neck reined. So when a rein on one side, like the the strings <laughs> that come up on each side of the of the bit that give you contact with the horse's mouth, when a horse is trained to neck rein, you only need to use one hand. And when that rein on each side touches the horse's neck, if the horse was touched on this side, it will move this way. And when it's touched on this side, it will move that way. Um, not every single horse is trained this way, but the horses in Yellowstone absolutely are. Uh, English horses you never see be able to neck rein because um, you're always riding them with two hands because they're usually horses that have a lot more uh, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Energy, like fierce energy. They're the jumpers, they're the hunters, um, they're like the adventures. So when you say English horses, do you mean horses in England or horses whose breeds are from England? Horses that are ridden in an English saddle. Oh, so neither. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, the English... English riding style originated in England, um, but the, the breeds now that they've transferred over, you know, thoroughbreds came from England and now they're in the United States and racing and everything. Any horse that's ridden in an English style very rarely is is um, able to be great at competing in Western. Um, there are horses called all-around horses where they can do Western and English disciplines. Uh, it takes a long time to train a horse to do both. None of my horses did both. Wayland was strictly a Western horse, and English and um, Willow was strictly an English horse. All right. So. Any other terms you think it's important for us to know going in? Yeah. So I wanna I wanna go back and you know I've I've explained what a rainer is. Uh, in, in regards to the television show, um, they do flying lead changes on command, you know, they do figure eights, they do rollbacks, which, you know, is when a horse stops, turns, and then picks up the correct lead in a canger or a lope in Western. In a what? A loping is like the, it, it's a walk, jog, lope in Western terminology. And it's a walk, trot, canter in English. But they it, they mean the exact same things, but it is a different gait. Sometimes a lope is actually a four-beat gait um, if the horse is going slow enough. Okay. I think I got it, but I also think no. I know. <laughs> We're never going to be able to fit this in a couple hours. <laughs> well, but, but I do, I want to go back to explaining 
the difference between a rainer and a cutter because a rainer is what we're seeing in Yellowstone when they're doing their sliding stop competition. But then a cutter is a horse that goes into a herd of cattle and cuts a specific cow out of that herd. And they're the, they're the ones that are like flying back and forth as the cow is moving and they're following that cow's body language. And if a cutting horse is trained the way that it's supposed to be, that horse will do it on its own. Mm. You don't have to tell it what to do. It's reading that cow's body language and it's moving on its haunches based on where that cow is going because it wants that cow out of the herd. It knows that it needs to get it for whatever reason, whether it needs that cow needs medication, whether that cow needs to be bred, branded, you know, it needs to be separated for another reason. Um, you know, say it's going into a different pen or a different pasture, it's being sold. So cutting horses are, are what I would consider very cow aggressive. Like they love cattle, but they love pushing around cattle more. <laughs> and they love their job. And they're actually trained on a flag at first that's on, a, on you know, a string against a wall. And that horse is trained to follow that flag. You know, say a red or white flag on the wall. And they train their horse to follow. And then they put them in a ring with cattle. And then it's just natural. Um, because some horses have a really good cow sense and want to herd cattle. Uh, I owned a mare named Red Sunny Savannah who was very cow smart. And Willow, my... Uh, horse that I mentioned earlier, who was the appendix quarter horse, uh, she was deathly afraid of cattle. So, you know, she she was practically having a heart attack every time we saw a cow. And that's the difference, I think, between Western bred horses and English bred horses. You you can find an English horse that's going to work cattle, but it's rare. You know, the breeding does have to be there. They do have to have some sense of wanting to work. And wanting to work really hard because cutting is not easy and reining is not easy on horses. Um, it's a lot of physical ability. And it's a lot yeah. of communication with their rider. <clears throat> you know, uh, Stacy Westfall is a really famous uh, trainer in the Western world and in the English world. But she, she competed uh, at the American Quarter Horse Congress, which is the largest single breed horse show in the world. And it's held in Columbus, Ohio. And she competed bareback and bridleless and won the reigning freestyle at that show and went down in history for it because it was just her and just her horse. And they could do everything that they do when they do their reigning uh, sliding stop competition in Yellowstone without bridle or saddle. So... It, it can, ha it, you know, if you, have, yeah. you have, if you have a strong enough connection with your horse and they trust you and you love them and there's, the, there's this deep mutual bond, truly the sky is the limit. Um, and how long does it take to train something like that? Because I'd imagine it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. You're, you have to learn for, I'd imagine, a very long time yeah. before you even start training one of those, one of the horses. And then how long does that take? Yeah, so so in the case of Stacy Westfall, you know she was a she's a professional trainer. So probably doing it like literally all her life. Yes, uh, and she talks in articles and in you know biographies about her childhood that she learned how to ride bareback because that's just what they did out in the fields. 
And to have that connection with a horse was something really special. And she, when she competed, and of course when she won, she dedicated that ride to her father, who she had just lost. And of course it was standing ovations, and it, it was such a win not only for her but I think it was a win for equestrian sports in general because it proved that our horses love us and our horses do want to work for us and that it was like when she was riding it was just a dance you know she was out there having so much fun and the horse was having so much fun and you know they just wanted to be together it didn't matter if the crowd was there or not and to put that into perspective horses in the Olympics are around 15 years old at the prime of their life. That's how long they take to train. But dressage is also a very dedicated discipline. It's not something you can train in a year. It's something that takes forever to yeah. train, in it. and it takes a, a soft hand and a dedicated trainer and a very intelligent horse to pull off dressage or even the, the horses at the Vienna Riding School um, the Lipazon breed that jumps in the air on command, they are an ancient breed and they take forever to train. And they, uh, the trainers at the Vienna Riding School, keep detailed accounts of the training procedures on every single horse so that they know uh, what horse ancestry you know, it descends from, so, oh, this horse is just like its great-great-grandfather, or this horse is just like its grandmother. And then they can track, you know, the lineage and and keep track of the genealogy that's, in that breed. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That breed also was, um, during, you know, the Nazi regime sweeping across Europe and destroying everything in sight, and Hitler's you know, master plan of developing this, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed master race of people. He also had the same uh, notion to do it with horses and have his armies, you know, ride into towns and villages and cities on white stallions. And so one of his heists was to go and start stealing the prized stallions and mares and full crops from the Vienna Riding School. And the Lipazon breed is a very ancient breed of horses that's, you know, like been summered uh, and and schooled and trained uh, very distinctly and deliberately by, you know, groups of people across time. And they're very priceless, truly. Their, their lineage, their bloodlines, the way that they're trained is vastly different from the training styles of any other equestrian uh, discipline. So when those horses were let loose in Europe, uh, as you know, Russia started moving troops in, and of course their armies are hungry, and horses are not only food, but uh, companions for war, they were very worried, uh, you know, the trainers from the Vienna Riding School who went with these stallions and mares and tried to keep them together, that the bloodline would dissipate. And Hitler's uh, SS soldiers and uh, 
you know, the people that he assigned to keep track of these animals believed that genealogy would be stronger by breeding, you know, fathers to to uh, daughters and mothers to sons, and they essentially started destroying the bloodline. And the United States government went in and saved saved the Lipizzan breed and restored it back to the Vienna Riding School, and we can still, as tourists, go see them perform today in the same way that they would have back during the 19, you know, 1940s-ish, 1940s, yeah. before World War II ended in 1945. But yeah, the, the book uh, that I learned all of this knowledge from is called The Perfect Horse, and it's by a, a author called Elizabeth Lutz, named Elizabeth Lutz, and she also wrote a book called The $80 Champion, and it's about one of the greatest show-jumping horses of all time, who was a horse named Snowman, and he was rescued from a slaughter truck for $80. And he became the greatest show jumping champion of all time. And he was half draft horse. Wow, that's awesome. Yep. yep. That's really interesting. And I, you know, it, and I know that uh, you know, back even in, in World War One, a lot of people were still fighting on horseback as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, in the horse world we always say like a dog is man's best friend, but a horse is man's best slave. Because there are so many horses that have went to war alongside men from any dynasty, empire, any country going. And uh, they have been our most trusted friends through it all. So I guess um, it, it, I think I guess it's a, a good point to, to kind of talk some of the, the animal safety uh, topics on set. With uh, with all these competitions, with Yellowstone mm -hmm. doing everything that they're doing, yeah. with all of these movies with horses in it, like you've got a ton of movies. Like you've got, I mean, you got the movie War Horse, you've got mm -hmm. Sea Biscuit, you've got all these movies with these famous horses. Um, how do they? How how are these horses trained for to ensure that they're doing what they're supposed to on set? To ensure that the people around them aren't interfering with with them in a way that kind of obstructs what they're trying to accomplish with the horse. Yep, definitely. Make sure nobody gets hurt, you know? Yep. So actually last night when I was watching Tombstone, there is a stallion that Kurt Russell's character um, unloads off of the train. And it's this it's, you know, a stallion. And that horse's nostrils in that movie are flaring when he's standing and holding it, which means that horse was worked pretty hard, you know, up to a sweat. It's tired. It's tired enough to stand there and not cause a ruckus. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, but, but that's also a good thing, right? You know, horses need to be worked. They're working animals. They need their brain to be... Uh, occupied, especially with all of the lights and the cameras and all the people that are poking and prodding and running around. It's a lot for horses to take in, especially when they've been bred, you know, and, and evolved as fight, you know, fight or flight animals, um, mostly flight. So, you know, desensitizing them to uh, parades and people and yeah, 
streamers and fireworks and gunshots all takes time. And the only way to truly desensitize a horse properly is to expose them to everything. It's kind of like human babies, right? You know, in order to socialize your human baby, you need to bring them out and yeah. expose them to people and animals and different environments. Well, like we it's were just talking same... about before this with uh, German shepherds. Exactly. Um, you know, we we tried to, to bring our uh, uh, dog Lena in as many crowds as a young puppy as we could so that she's used to that. Um, we saw it even with the uh, the animals at the the canines at the public safety show last year, you know. Yeah. Oh, and they were just laying around, loving it, you know. Yeah. There were some <laughs> that we saw that you could tell are super anxious, super high energy. Yeah. That like, oh, that one might maybe maybe I would have uh, you know tried to use up a little bit more of that energy before we brought that one. Here. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like that same idea. Yep. So when when trainers are bringing their horses on set and they've been contracted out to say bring you know twenty five horses and and they need these specific skill sets for the horses to have you know this horse needs to jump over a log this need this horse needs to be able to run through water um, that's not so hard when it comes to western horses because those horses are usually already doing those things but um, horses that are on filmed even doing tricks acting you know you think of like the movie black beauty when black beauty is running around and opening gates and you know yeah being a little trickster that horse had to learn all of that by being bonded to its trainer and horses that are in movies are always uh you know, being guided by their trainer, whether that that trainer is the one that's actually riding them, you know, in stunt stunts or something. Yeah. But it's also, you know, that that trainer, that human that they love, is behind the camera. They're not far away from their animal, and uh, um, of course, you know, trainers on film sets don't want their horses to get hurt. Like, nobody wants to have to put their horse down. Right. So sometimes when there are accidents on, on set, you know, a horse breaks a leg, you know, when they're filming a stampede, or, you know, something happens and a horse colics on set, you know, that's really common in the horse world, actually. It's the number one leading cause of death in horses worldwide is colic, the twisted gut that I was talking about earlier. So when PETA comes in and says, oh, a horse colicked on this film set, well... I have a, many, many friends who's, who have had to put down horses that have colicked or cast themselves in a stall. And when I say cast, uh, I mean, you know, horses, when they lie down and roll over, they can hitch themselves against the wall of their stall. And if a horse can't get back up, they will die because they're, they're so heavy that their internal organs get get too pressurized and it uh, is debilitating to them and they pass away oh my God. so you know i i have tons and tons of friends who have uh you know like cameras in their horses stalls and it's like oh what's he doing it's kind of like a baby camera in your nursery what's the baby doing yeah because they can hurt themselves and they do and and accidents do happen you know horses do um accidentally tear through fences i can't even tell you how many times waylon escaped my fence at home and it has absolutely nothing to do with me being a terrible horse owner it's just he happened to be houdini and could get out of any situation run through any fence you know it doesn't matter how electrified it was 
all of a sudden you see him wandering around the lawn. There goes Waylon, you know? Yeah. You can't, uh, you can't control every scenario that's going to happen. And so, especially in the, the original Westerns, you know, the, before CGI, all of those stunts were, were real, you know, and they were done by stunt riders and stunt horses. And when, you know, they simulate stampedes and a whole herd of cattle is running, well, that herd of cattle actually is scared in real life, you know, or, or they're being made to run somewhere. And because they have such a herd mentality, you know, if they start actually getting scared or something sets them off, you know, it's a hard group to control yeah. a, a stampeding herd. So uh, you see that in a lot of Western films, like, oh, you know, somebody died in a stampede. Well, yeah, of, of course they did. You know, when a thousand, a thousand head herd of cattle is running, they're not worried about who they're going to harm. Yeah. They're just in it for survival instinct. So I guess I I don't uh, I don't think I've heard that many cases. But is it is it is it common for people to get hurt doing things like that? Doing like shooting stampedes and things. So so it isn't anymore because it's so heavily regulated now. Yeah. But uh, there still are accidents that happen on sets. You know, um, you can't control every situation. Even when when they were shooting Lord of the Rings, for instance, Peta came in and a few horses passed away on set, and it was a huge deal. Oh. Uh, they they were injured uh, when they were doing like the battle charges. So when all of the horses, the cavalry was coming in yeah. and charging, um, horses were injured there and had to be put down. Whether it was broken pastern bones or coffin bones um, in their legs, horses can't unfortunately survive any injury, uh, any bone injury to the leg. And they have tried. They've tried to save thoroughbreds who have broken their legs on the track. Um, Barbosa, I believe, is the name of, of one of the racehorses. That they tried to, you know, to put him in a pool and walk him and, and see if they could save his life. And even with all of the money that, you know, his owners had, it still, it still didn't, uh, didn't work. Is that because of that same idea that if a, if, if they don't have the use of all three of their legs, or all four of their legs, then they can't really stand. And if exactly. they end up... And their down, body, their, yeah, their body mass is too heavy for the legs that they stand on. So if anything happens to those legs, uh, it's impossible to cure and hmm. heal. Um, you will see horses, they'll get like, you know, tendon injuries. They'll have, uh, you know, like muscle aches and sores. You know, some, you know, horses will, like, get caught on their legs. Like, you know, God forbid they run through barbed wire fences or, or any, you know, any kind of injury like that. Um, those <clears throat> can be healed over time. But tendon injuries are still very serious. And they take what we call stall rest. So, you know, hardly any pasture turnout. And they're mostly just standing and eating and healing and going about their day inside the barn all right well i had no idea 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, horses routinely too will go out and tear in pastures and run around and go crazy and and play, and they'll come back into the barn lame. And when I say lame, I mean like limping. And what happens then? You just put them on stall rest, give them maybe some butte, you know, some painkiller, and hope that they, you know, come out of it. But I've I've watched my own horses run around in our pastures and fields and fall down on their own. <laughs> so it can happen. Horses do fall. Horses do fall without their riders. You know, they do wipe out, like clear off their own feet. Uh, it's it's alarming to see a, an animal that large just completely, you know, lose well, their balance. But it does happen. It's not. I guess it's not. It's not that surprising. Just think of it like, like with our with our dog Lena. Like she's been she's jumped to and from. She's a strong dog and she's in good shape. But she has like sprained her leg jumping to and from the couch before and not, not she's actually done that like three times before or like she just run because you know german shepherds are they're throwing their body everywhere all the time and she's like literally like hurt herself before by just running into the coffee table mm -hmm. and yep. so yeah i mean like big animals i guess it, 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 it i guess like now that you mention it it doesn't surprise me that much that like mm -hmm. you know they're just they're just another type of animal you know yep Horses fall down too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, truly like horses in a nutshell when it comes to their behaviors and how they train and their bonds with humans and um, you know, really, it doesn't really matter which breed of horse you're dealing with. They're all the same on the inside, you yeah. know, whether they're built and bred for jumping or they're built and bred for, you know, sorting cows and cutting cows. They, um, they always, you know, perform for their humans Yeah. in the same way that show dogs perform for their humans. They love to work and they love to be around people. And I think it would be an amazing experience to be on a film set with a set of horses that are bonded to me because it would be so interesting to see how, what their reactions are and what they think because they are very highly intelligent animals. Yeah. Um, I know horses who are smarter than some humans I know and, uh, I would, I would just love to see their reaction to things because they do look at you like, is this for real lady? Or, I'm not doing that. Are you crazy? You hang out with this dummy? Like, yeah. Like, can we leave now? I'm bored. Yeah. Well, and so, uh, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to, uh, to, uh, when, before we had done this episode, when we were talking about it, there was two different movies. I was like, I, I told you, you should watch. The first one was Nope. Mm -hmm. And then I figured out you hadn't watched Tombstone yet, so that was I was like, no, forget about Nope, watch yep. Tombstone because that's that's like one of the best westerns ever. But Nope specifically, I wanted you to watch because, um, like so even if uh, so it, you should watch it eventually because what's interesting about it is the title characters, um, not the title characters, but the main characters, um, are a family that has owned horses since like the silent film area or era. And 
there's a scene where one of the guys has the horse on set and he's standing by the horse the entire time waiting for them to be ready for this commercial and they're going back and forth about all these different things and the movie star is being a pain and he keeps telling them like they got to keep moving like that you've got to you've got to get this rolling because like the horse is is done and like then like uh when they finally start like i forget exactly what it is that happened but i think like he told he had the he told the person to stop looking the horse in the eyes or something mm-hmm. um because the horse didn't like that and like so it's just kind of like I, I thought some of the stuff that happened there was interesting and and i hadn't seen it before and i would love to get your take on it mm-hmm. when you do get to see that but like it was an interesting like behind the scenes look yeah at how horses are handled in hollywood Yep. And, you know, every horse is different, right? Every horse has a different personality in the same way that humans do. And they all have their own little quirks. So, you know, there are horses that don't like to be looked in the eye. Some of them, if you weren't looking them in the eye, they'd think that you weren't the alpha anymore and you weren't in charge. (laughs) Because, you know, handling a 1,500-pound animal that could kill you, there has to be some mutual trust and love there. Uh, in order to keep it safe, you know, and because it horseback riding in general is the most dangerous sport in the world. So yeah, I know a lot of people who've gotten hurt. Doing yeah, it, so. be, because, um, you know, I think people sometimes don't go into it with the knowledge that they need to succeed when it comes to reading body, the body language of horses or how to ride. You know, everyone, everyone always used to joke when I was younger, oh, you just sit there. Mm, go try and ride a horse because you don't just sit there. You are working every muscle, you know, and every ounce of your brain to connect and have that bond with your horse. And, you know, you go into a show ring and some of that it gets so much more heightened. You know, there's the nerves, the horse could be scared, you know, there's new scents and smells and sounds. And, Working through that uh, with an animal is something really powerful. Yeah. It, it it builds character because it doesn't always work out, you know. Like, I, I think uh, back to when I used to show horses when I was younger and didn't really know what I was doing. And I sometimes, I, I do wonder, like, wow, that could have ended badly or... Yeah. And I, you know, you have to lose a lot to appreciate when you win. And you're not going to win every time you step into a ring. You're not going to win every ride. Some rides are going to be absolute brutal fighting, it seems, with your horse. You know, you want them to do something and you're asking them in a way that they can't understand. Yeah. And it's breaching that, like, non-language communication and having patience because if your horse isn't doing what you want them to do, you're not asking them the right way. Right. And uh, it really helped me bond um, <clears throat> with my with my horses, you know, as I was a teenager. And it helped raise me, I think, into the woman that I became because I was, you know, I, I was so focused on showing and riding horses and doing that at home that I think I became a better communicator and a more empathetic person by being around so many animals when I was younger. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It built character. Yeah. In, in uh, so many ways. And it truly 
you know, when I have my own children someday, the first thing I'm getting them is horses because it was so formative to my, you know, teenage, teenage years and beyond. Yeah. And I think that just owning animals in general tends to get people to, it, it builds a certain, a certain type of social behavior in people mm-hmm. and having, um, you know, so, so not to compare it again to dogs, but that's what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like having any sort of animal, like a dog, like a horse, even having chickens or anything like that, like it, it, it gives you, you responsibilities too. you know, yep. you, you have certain training, you have certain chores, you know, certain things that you need to do that I think, you know, having children or teenagers, um, have responsibilities like that is a great start moving them into the real world, you know? Yeah. And it teaches them kindness toward something that only depends on them. Yeah. And I think if, you know, this, these generations that come after us, um, raise animals in their homes, we're going to create a world of empaths. Yeah. Of, and I, and I truly think that that's what the world needs more of. We need more people who are empathetic human beings and kind toward those that are, are less fortunate, can't fend for themselves, you know, our innocence. And, uh, you know, I've raised every single animal you can imagine. I've shown oxen. I've, (laughs) you know, I've hatched more chickens than probably anybody I know. Um, But yeah, having, having empathy for animals is the key. And, you know, horses, horses was that for me more than any other animal but you know i've i've had my own german shepherd zeus and king i've raised rabbits you know guinea pigs um everything pigs goats well you know everybody's talking right now with the price of eggs right now it's a great time to have chickens it is yep (laughs) and they are you know they are fun if anyone is planning on buying chickens, I recommend Rhode Island Red Hens. They're big, um, they're sweet, uh, and they lay amazing eggs. White Leghorns, too. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, so the next topic I wanted to talk about is Western stars, movies, and culture. So, first off, Let's talk about Yellowstone a little bit more because I know you had some thoughts on a couple things with that. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Yellowstone, you know, when I think about Western film culture, TV culture, you know, hearkening back to Gunsmoke and Bonanza, I see and I view Yellowstone more as perhaps the first Western mafia type TV show or movie. Yeah but more mafia-esque because there is so much lawlessness, so much killing. um, And, and truly like the entire storyline revolves around them fighting, them trying to protect their land, them, uh, you know, kind of buying the police department and, and putting, putting their own, you know, sons and, 
and uh, farm hands in the police department to make sure that like they can get away with all of this. To me, it's a touch far-fetched, and they could tone it down a little bit. I realize that's what like drew people in to the first couple of seasons of Yellowstone. You know, everybody loved Betha Dutton and and you know, she goes off, you know, off the cuff and, and she's one of those characters that is very in many ways very hyper masculine and people celebrate her in that show for that. But from my perspective and where I am sitting as a woman in America when we as women are hyper masculine or step into our power in that way and are promiscuous and running around naked and and uh you know being bosses at work we aren't celebrated we're pushed down in society so it's interesting to me to see you know the uh, viewership of yellowstone loves her and loves that she swears and she loves sex and uh she's a badass at work but from where I'm sitting, that's not what society values in women. Yeah. When you're that in real life, people look down on you and judge you and want to silence you. And, uh, you know, she does, you know, many people do try to silence her in that show. And she always comes back even, even worse than she was before. <laughs> you know, she's, she comes back, she's scarred. You know, somebody tried to bomb her office and she's not giving up, which I appreciate so much. But in real life, if my office got bombed, I think I would, you know, feel like I needed to tone it down. Um, and and for me, I, I love her character and I love what she represents. And I hope that, you know, women who are watching that TV show think to themselves, you know, we can be a Beth Dutton. We can be financially power, you know, financial powerhouses. We we can have it all. Uh, you're going to create enemies along the way, uh, perhaps more than men do. You know, men can rise to power and, you know, no, no one's going to probably bomb their office. Yeah, right. Um, but she d- never takes no for an answer and she does protect her family uh, in ways that is very honorable, but then of course, you know they do kill a lot of people too and take them to the to the train station. Yeah. <laughs> so I agree with I agree with uh, with pretty much everything you just said. Um, what's interesting is when I pitch Yellowstone to people, I pitch it as it's either Sons of Anarchy or The Sopranos in the West. That's how I pitch it to people. Yeah. Because that's what it is. It's a crime drama. It's all about... I think it reminds me more of Sons of Anarchy, mm-hmm. um, which I love. But it's that it's that, that thing of, like, it's a family, and we're trying to be successful together in this arena. You know, in mm-hmm. that one, it's a motorcycle club. Here, it's a ranch. Sopranos, it's the mob. Yep. So it's like that... It's that thought in there... They're gonna do anything they anything they have to do to keep what they have going, um, and at mm-hmm. the same time, so they're 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 killing people. They're um, you know, and, and 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 interestingly, in in all these examples, there's that whole thought of how far are we gonna push this? Are we are we pushing too far in this other direction? 
you know, and and I think someone like Sons of Anarchy, the main character, um, Jax, that's his struggle the entire show is how how far in this direction do I go? You know, I, w- I would like to pull us out of the crime. And so he's trying to pull them out of the crime, but he keeps getting pulled back into it and making it worse more and more towards the end of the show. That seems to be happening with... Uh, I'm so bad with the names on, on Yellowstone, but the one son who's married to the uh, Native American girl, mm-hmm. that se- he seems to have, have uh, replaced that role where he's, at the beginning of the show, not even living on the ranch. He doesn't live there. He doesn't work there. He wants nothing to do with them. And he gets pulled back in, and he doesn't want... He wants to change things, but he's not sure what to change. And he keeps, like you said, taking people to the... To the train station mm-hmm. and and you know getting involved in these these acts that are like he's trying to do it the right way but he is breaking the law while he's doing it so it's yeah it's it, it it reminds me of Sons of Anarchy a lot yeah and it eats away at him too and I would even say I compare it also with Peaky Blinders yeah, I love Peaky because Blinders. they're such a close family unit and their culture as Gyp- Romani gypsies is so fascinating it's very it, it's not in any way similar to to western you know Montana like country culture but it's definitive yeah and they're trying to preserve their way of life in such a lasting way that they're willing to kill for it, and they're willing to defend their territory to the death. Yeah. And many of them lose their lives. They, you know, they do fight internally. They have family squabbles that are not rectified and sorted out in any way, and they lose a lot of very prominent family members because of their turf wars and mafia wars, stretching to Boston and New York City and beyond yeah. through that TV show. And but they're survivors. They're not going to give up their way of life. They're not going to give up being the Peaky Blinders. And I think as Yellowstone progresses, we're going to see that the Duttons are not going to give up their way of life. They're going to fight to the death for it. And you know maybe that means that they all eventually die. You know, like the Duttons can be no more. Uh, even even in modern America. Family farms that large are becoming extremely hard to maintain and and keep because yeah. there's so many people that want to develop the land. You know, people are coming in and want to do sky rises and put up casinos and build ski resorts and bring industry into places that have remained, for for lack of a better word, wild. And you know, we are seeing that in Yellowstone as they're you know, fighting to keep the entire farm as farm and land as one unit. The reality is that it can't happen without money. And that's why they bring in the reining and cutting horses and start going to competitions because they're trying to wrestle up money for the ranch. Yeah. Because they need to be able to pay their, you know, property taxes and all of the bills that come with a huge home like that and a huge operation like that. And you know, when you see the reining horses come into the ring, they're they're just dollar signs. You know, can this one win it, win it a fraternity? Is this one going to be able to be a stud at some point? Yeah. You know, how much money can this horse bring in? And uh, they're talking, you know, oh, in three years, maybe maybe this one or 
or you know maybe maybe this is the ringer for us you know bringing in a ringer in the show pen means that you're bringing in a horse that's really never been shown before but isn't gonna end up you know really doing well and winning a lot of money and maybe pushing out competition that's been working hard for years when you bring a ringer in you're going to um win above them yeah with with little to no um um what's the word i'm looking for little to no effort on your part you're just buying the horses in hiring trainers going to the shows winning taking the cash and and selling the horses to the highest bidder um, one thing I wanted to say is that I think is interesting about the prequels to Yellowstone is that so 1883 is essentially the Oregon Trail. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yep. And then uh, 1923, the one that comes after that, is once they're on their lands and they're, they're starting to get into everything. Watching these two prequels, you see how far the Dutton family has come from what it originally was mm-hmm. you know because they're generally very good people but now they're not good people you know like kevin costner is not a good guy no. you know <laughs> like, he's he's like like I, I would venture to say he might be the, like the villain of the show you know like they don't really frame him that way but like it it, it kind of seems like like by the end of the show maybe you will see that you know that like yes. that that um Earlier on, like, I mean, they make a point at the end of 1883 to say, to point out that when they got that land, they promised they were going to return it to those Native Americans in whatever it was, so many generations. Like, in so many generations, Mm -hmm. we expect uh, this much of the land to be returned to us. And that, and then, and then that never happened obviously mm-hmm. um and there's obviously no plan to let it happen either but i think that's interesting that they put that in there because they seem to be telling these intertwined native american stories as you go through as well yeah. and i'm wondering if maybe by the end of the show that's where it ends up that the duttons over time became greedy became almost the villains of their own story yep and by the end of it the native americans end up with the land back and we haven't quite connected those dots of all of the different native american characters throughout this but he is the son is married to a native american Mm -hmm. and they have a son together and there's a good chance that that son or a future child of theirs will end up with this land by the end yes um you've seen further ahead than, than me so if for all i know the son and the wife are dead by this point but <laughs> so don't spoil it if they are and maybe i'm completely wrong but i think that that could be where they're headed is they've placed these little pieces through where it's like where it's like they promised this land back they never did they got this land given to them they didn't take mm-hmm. it you know, yeah. they didn't they didn't properly earn it. It got given to them by the Native Americans. And now they are literally fighting the Native Americans to keep this land. So it's I, I think that's an interesting parallel that they tell. Um, another thing that happened in the most recent episode of 1923 is Harrison Ford talking about how 
the reason there he's so passionate about this land is because he's like he's like if you he's like picture Chicago. Have you ever wondered no now picture Chicago without the city there. He's like that's what we have right now and that's what I'm fighting for is for somebody not to turn this into the next Chicago. Mm. And so it, to me that that almost seems like that is also what this entire show is about, you know, is about all it's it's about preserving land. Um preserving this 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 American way of life that has been almost like 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 captured. You know? Absolutely. It's, and and keeping the west wild. Yeah. You know, uh keeping keeping that natural environment unpolluted and unpopulated. And I agree a hundred percent that Kevin Costner and the Duttons in general are the villains in Yellowstone because they're so engrossed in the idea that they are the rightful owners of their land when we're all here on borrowed time. Yeah. Like we do not own anything. And uh to have stolen so much of our country from Native Americans and to not have ever apologized to them for that uh, as, you know, European immigrants is blasphemous at this point. And truly, it astonishes me even to this day that there are families that own ridiculous amounts of land in the United States and who who should not um who, who should be more grateful for how much land they do own that's truly soaked in the blood of our indigenous population yeah and I know that seems like harsh words to say but it's a hundred percent the truth no it is we came here stole everything from them, overpopulated our country, have polluted everything, and have never once given them given them at least the satisfaction of saying sorry. And I feel like that's like in a backdoor way almost what he's trying to tell the the creator of this show. Exactly, because the son has fallen in love with a Native American woman. His son is Native American, and it doesn't matter, you know, the Duttons are saving their land to give it willingly to a Native American grandchild. So it's come so full circle. It's like, well, you won't give it back to the Native American tribe of which it rightfully belongs, but you'll give it to your grandson who belongs to that Native American tribe yeah. from which it rightfully belongs. Yeah. So, like, you love him and cherish him. Of course you do. He's your grandchild. But at the same time, it's like you you should be respecting who he is, where he comes from. Yeah. He, he's a symbol of true survival. You know, when you think about, like, the Trail of Tears and, uh, the you know, the Battle of Wounded Knee and mass genocide in the United States, he's a symbol of indigenous culture surviving. And so if the Dutton Ranch goes to him, well, great, so be it. Yeah. It's a couple, you know, it's a hundred years too late. 
Yeah, and it seems like with those those little uh, breadcrumbs that he's laid in the prequels, it seems like that's where they're headed with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's probably good, you know, because like he seems like the purest part of the family too. Like right now, he's he's pure in that, you know, like the daughter, the father, um, even the the lawyer son, like like all of them are are terribly tainted and and like they've done terrible things, mm-hmm. and they just don't seem to be good people. And like you know, and that that was part of the thing with the daughter saying about uh, the the son. I keep saying the daughter and the son and the brother because I don't remember anybody's name. Um, <laughs> I don't the know Duttons, why. The Duttons. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Costner, the Duttons. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what I remember. <laughs> I don't know why. I've watched so many episodes and I, I can't remember any of their names. But uh, the the daughter says that she's like she's like you should take your husband and leave this place because he's good right now, and mm-hmm. and this place is going to ruin him, yeah. just like it ruined her. Just like it ruined her father, and their mother, who was good, died. Yep. So like she was the she was the good that was holding them together, and that the daughter basically says like like your family unit, the three of you are good right now, and I'm like I don't want this place to ruin you, mm-hmm. and if she, if 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 even you take one of them out of that equation of three people, I feel like that would they would go down the same path. You know, as the rest of the family has. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the little boy gets kidnapped. Yeah, he I made kills it past someone. that part. I haven't and, made it to that part. Oh, okay. I'm, I, whoops, are sealed. But, hey, but so oh, you yeah. do, you do see it. It's writing on the wall, right? You know, if he stays, how, how could you stay amongst the Dutton family and not be a victim to uh, murder and, you know, kidnapping yeah. and being shot at or stalked or uh, threatened in some way. And he unfortunately sees it at such a young age and is scarred for life because of it. And uh, you see like his healing process and, and he starts going through, you know, post-traumatic stress and, and not a single person in that family is prepared to heal him through that. No. None of them has a healthy way to heal. No, because they're all broken people. Yeah. They all need therapy. Yeah. The Duttons. <laughs> they all need therapy and they all have the money to go to therapy and don't go. Yeah. <laughs> no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh so it's 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 a good show. I'm glad I started watching it and I th- I think that uh, you know, that I think that's where the show is headed. Mhm. Yep. And I think it's wonderful that it is because when you look at Western film history, the way that indigenous rights and race are represented and portrayed on film within, you know, John Wayne's movies, Clint Eastwood's movies and beyond, uh, it's very problematic. They're they're constantly portraying Native Americans. as uh, you know rapists and killers and kidnappers and heathens and dirty and sinful unchristian like everything that at at that time society hated and resented 
they they take the Native American and say these Indians are horrible people and you should be afraid of them and you should hate them and vilify them. And, uh, you know, we know now today that Native American tribes across the West were just trying to reclaim what was theirs and, and have the white population respect them. Yeah. And not colonize them so brutally and, and obviously, uh, you know, history speaks for itself. Yeah, and that, I think that's one of the things I liked about 1883 is that it, it showed um, kind of, it showed like, like all the different ways, all the different complexities of the Native American culture in relation to the Oregon Trail. Like, you're going to find people that are friends with you. You're going to find people that you fall in love with. You're going to find people that you can trade with. And you're going to find people that will probably kill you. Just like any other culture, there mm-hmm. are those complexities to it. Yep. Um, and then they also make a point in explaining um, for, for the, you know, in layman's terms for those out there, like, why all these things are there, you know, and mm-hmm. why these complexities are there and how they compare to this culture and... Um, I think that the, the mutual respect, respect between the main characters and the Native Americans and the relationships that they establish, I think it, 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 all of those were done very well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely. And you can't say the same for the majority of Western movies. No, and so I love Westerns. They're one of my favorite types of movies, but you know, watching back through them over time, you do find so many problematic things. Yeah. Um. It and it's some of them, and you know, it's it was a different. It, like, what can you say? You know, it was a different time. Mm-hmm. It's like we were watching uh, uh, Fistful of Dollars the other day, and Sarah asked me like, "Are any of these characters actually Mexican?" And I was like, "I guarantee they're not, because this mm-hmm. was filmed in Italy." <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't think in the six or what was it the four it was it the forties or the sixties it was the sixties so I think it was made in like nineteen sixty four and like I I can't imagine there were any Native Americans or any Mexican people in Italy at the time um, because everything and if there were they certainly weren't in the acting business simply because things were so segregated back then mm-hmm. that there was like. Even if somebody wanted to, zero opportunity. It's just not going to happen because of the way business, because of the way Hollywood, because of the way all of these are set up. Um, it's it was just extremely segregated at the time. You know? Yeah, definitely. And their their ideology was why hire a Mexican, why hire hire a Native American when we can just hire a white man and make him look indigenous. Yeah, which is even more problematic now yeah. that we understand. <laughs> That it's it's a variation of blackface. And essentially. You, you, I mean, you, you like you brought up John Wayne before. There was the whole thing with like John Wayne being dressed up as Genghis Khan and in the one mm-hmm. movie of his, and it's just like that is something like like What's what is interesting about so like I want to talk about spaghetti westerns for a second, just because I was just talking about uh, fistful of dollars. So what's interesting, though, about spaghetti westerns is that so when Clint Eastwood went over there for and and, and, and I'm explaining this just as much for the audience as you you probably know this already. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Clint Eastwood went over to 
Italy to film all these movies, he didn't speak Italian. And most of the cast and crew didn't speak English. So there was a translator that was there working with Clint Eastwood to work with Sergio Leone while he was making these movies because they couldn't actually communicate together. Wow. And so, like, when you watch the movie, and the, the reason this topic came up while we were watching it was because you notice that everybody in that movie is dubbed. So if you watch it carefully, you can you can tell nobody's speaking English, and there's just voiceovers over every single no character kidding. that isn't Clint Eastwood. Wow. Yeah, Y'all because have to none of them now. spoke English, and they just put English voices over it when it got back here. And so eventually Clint Eastwood started to learn Italian, and he started to uh, I, I think he took he took some classes and and kind of learned from communicating with people that way. And eventually, you know, they made three movies together. Eventually, they were able to start communicating, but that's how it was for for a good while of that production, is that it was literally everybody speaking speaking Italian. So when they say something to Clint Eastwood, they don't know what he's saying back, and he doesn't know what they just said to him. They're just reading a script. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was that's what that's what's like really interesting to me about the spaghetti westerns in general. Is that like they're they're there's something that almost shouldn't have been successful, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they're like this the the odds are obviously stacked against them, but like that that genre ran off Clint Eastwood's energy for so long for all of those movies, you know? And he he really really did so well in all of them, um, but it, it it's it's all running off him, you know? Mm-hmm. Without him, those aren't successful. Um, yeah. But, you know, and Ennio Morricone did the music for for the uh, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And his music in those three movies sets him on a whole nother level as well because the music is so good. And, I mean, finishing The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with The Ecstasy of Gold, you know that one, right? Mm-hmm. Finishing with that song is like, it's like the pinnacle of one of the most, like, iconic scenes scores out there and it's been used in so many things since um but yeah that's my that's my uh my spaghetti western soapbox wow very cool yeah clint eastwood he's a a god when it comes to western film you know perhaps even more so than john wayne because i think he really came in and redefined the genre yeah and started playing characters that you know were were not as white savior as John Wayne came across. Uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, even in the Outlaw Josie Wales, he's no, he's no savior. He's trying to do right by you know the people around him, but he's not a good guy. Yeah. Um, and when you watch that film, you're rooting for him. You're like, oh wow, okay, he's he's going to do the right thing. You know where. When you know in the past he did not, yeah, he wouldn't be an outlaw if 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 he had. <laughs> yeah, have you seen Unforgiven? Mm-hmm. So that I think is like it's the pinnacle of all of those because yeah. by that point, Clint Eastwood knows westerns better than anybody by that point in his career, mm-hmm. and he actually purchased the rights to that story. Years and years before, yep. but he never, but he wanted to wait until he aged into the role. 
and uh, I'm pretty sure that movie won an Oscar. Um, but like, it is so good, especially in the fact that like, it's challenging all of those tropes that he helped establish. Mm-hmm. He's 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 going in purposefully making decisions that go against everything he's established. Um, and it's just done in such a beautiful way, too. I would say The Unforgiven is perhaps the greatest Western uh, Clint Eastwood has made of all time. Um, And it's absolutely in the top five best Westerns of of all time, of any, you know, of any uh, actor, leading actor. Yeah. Unforgiven truly is a masterpiece. It is, and the cast is great, especially in that Gene Hackman in it. He is the most untraditional bad guy, because like what what I think is interesting about it is you could watch that movie and you could say it doesn't have a bad guy, mm-hmm. or you could say that everybody's bad. Or you could like, but like, like you can you can watch it in a way where like literally every character in that movie is like gray, mm-hmm. they're morally gray, and that's what I think makes it so interesting is that like especially Gene Hackman's character is he's 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 almost a good guy that just so happens to like cro- like meet this crossroads with with Clint Eastwood's character, mm-hmm. you know. And I think what's so fascinating about that trope, morally gray characters, is that I think in order to survive in the West back in those days, you became morally gray. Yeah. There was no way that you could stay, you know, your perfect Christian self and not commit any obscenities, murder, fraud, theft. Um, You had to be able to protect yourself. And, you know, women started shooting guns and women started, you know, riding horses uh, with one leg on each side, no side saddle, you know, which would have been unheard of back, you know, just probably a couple decades before. Yeah. Um, That freedom, um, freedom in dress, freedom in speech and, and, you know, doing what you want, when you want, how you want, with who you want. That was like the Western ideal. And that's why so many people went out West because it was, you know, what they considered to be the final frontier at the time. Like, oh, new opportunities. Gold was, you know, uh, surging. Yeah. And everybody wanted to, you know, stake their claim on the West. Well, yeah, stake your claim on the West, but try to keep it then. And I think that circles us back to the significantly morally gray Dutton family. Obviously, over you know a hundred years, uh, they they lose their sense of humanity yeah. completely, and perhaps that's what uh, Taylor Sheridan, the creator of Yellowstone, is trying to say. You know, when you have such power over the land and and you feel such an entitlement to the land that you're sitting on, do you do you really deserve it? No, the answer is no. You know. I just thought of something. Taylor Sheridan was in Sons of Anarchy. He oh, really? He plays the sheriff in like the first two seasons. Oh my gosh. It's been a while since I watched Sons of Anarchy. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. Yeah. 
Wow. Taylor Sheridan also plays, you know, guest roles in Yellowstone, too. But he's also like an AQHA, uh, which stands for American Quarterman Association, lifetime member. He's had a, you know, he's held achievement awards with the association. And he he rides uh, reining horses in real life and has his own ranch and everything. So oh, he's like cool. a real-life cowboy, yeah, so which is why it. he's so... Uh, ingrained in the industry and it's why so many trainers and so many really really famous horses were able to come up to the Yellowstone Ranch and film because he is a part of the industry (laughs) have you uh have you seen Wind River you know it doesn't ring a bell but who is the lead in it uh, it's Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner. It's like a, uh, it's, it's kind of like a oh, detective oh, okay. story. Yeah. I, I, um, I haven't seen it, but I know which, what you're talking about now. Yeah. So, it's uh, more modern contemporary. Yeah. Taylor Sheridan directed and wrote that as well. Oh. So that's one that's worth checking out. Yeah. I'll I really like that. of all the ones he's done. Yep. I think Elizabeth Olsen is a great actress. Yeah. She's good. And I Jeremy like her Renner. Yep. I like those two together. Yeah. Let's finish off with what your favorite classic westerns are and what your favorite modern westerns are. I think for me, my favorite classic western that I think is like the epitome of western film uh, is Stagecoach with John Wayne. But I also absolutely love, you know, the early silent western films and uh, the original short films with Buffalo Bill and the Annie Oakley. Um, I think those are really fascinating to see how far we've come and, and the culture and, and how Western culture created celebrities out of people. Yeah. You know, Annie Oakley and her sharpshooting skills. And, you know, when we when I watched Tombstone last night, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and, and all of these other famous people, uh, they've become symbols of the West. And I do sometimes wonder if they, when they were alive, realized just how famous they were becoming, when, when they, when they were, you know, pioneering and, you know, trying to eke out a living in ways that no one else ever had. So I think for me, you know, of course I have to go with a John Wayne, but for modern movies, um, I really love, you know, a lot of Westerns that actually aren't even set in the United States. I love a man, the man from snowy river. Um, I think that's just such a magnificent film and I love the amazing shots that they get, um, with, you know, the horses running, uh, over the mountaintops and everything that, that before CGI, I mean, that's all real stunt yeah. work. That's all true riding. Like, he is a fantastic horseman. Um, I love that movie. And I would say Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood has to be on that list. And The Outlaw Josie Wales. So, yeah, I I wrote an entire research paper when I was in college about the use of water and crossing water and what water symbolizes to populations in the West. Um, You know, crossing rivers with stagecoaches and horses and children and trying to keep all of your furniture with you was so incredibly dangerous. And as populations on the trails kept going west, it was river after river after river after river. And so 
in, you know, 1883, you see as they're going north, they, oh my goodness, here comes another river. Who are we going to lose this time? Yeah. What are we going to have to set on the banks of the shore and leave behind? You know, you're slowly losing your identity as you go and building a new identity, you know, once, once you land wherever you're going to land. And so, yeah, Outlaw Josie Wales has to be on that list for sure. And for modern Westerns for me, obviously I have to put True Grit on the list and the new True Grit. Of course, the old True Grit is fantastic as well, but I really enjoyed the new one. And I love 310 to Yuma. And I do really like the Western comedies, you know, A Million Ways to Die in the West and stuff. I think those are uh, a, a good jolt of fun. Yeah. They they bring a different element to the Western genre than just, you know, constant killing, rape, <laughs> and uh, conquering of, of indigenous peoples. So I think for me, those have to be like, ones that I would continue to watch over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I do love the Outlaw Josie Wales. Um it's that is definitely one of my favorite ones. And like even like the the cover artwork for that one mm-hmm. is like it's it's super iconic. Um True Grit is well I guess I'll, I'll give I guess I'll give mine and then we can discuss because we got a little bit of a hold over on each of ours so uh my favorite classic western so i so i love the clint eastwood movies his movies are all almost like that's pretty much my list the clint eastwood movies so the outlaw josie wales is awesome i love the man with no name trilogy or whatever you want to call it the dollars trilogy Mm um i i prefer the man with no name trilogy but like a lot of people call it different things I love that trilogy. I think it's and like what's interesting about it is it was like it wasn't shot to be a trilogy, but it's that's what it went down as in history. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is like you've got all the characters like there's each one has its own unique story that just so happens to have Clint Eastwood's character there passing through the whole thing, and it's also got it, it like each one has its own spin on the whole idea too, you know? And like, so the bad guy in the good, the bad and the ugly is Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. He's also the other good guy in for a few dollars more. And his character is so interesting in that movie in that, like, you know, the, the history that they're trying to tell without really telling the history of his character, mm-hmm. you know, with everything with the, with his daughter's, uh, with his daughter's picture and the, the medallion that he's carrying around with him. Like everything, every and and the all of the the stories they're trying to tell, like revolving around the money that's involved in these situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the third one, I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly is on another level. You know, it's so good. Everything yeah. that they involve with, like the Civil War era and how they involve the soldiers in the story. I mean, this movie's three hours long. It's it's that's as it's as epic as a western is going to be in that era um i do love the classics uh like uh like magnificent seven though oh yeah um yep. you know that's that's a, a great one um yeah that's i like shane like too shane i was always a big fan of you have you seen shane Mm-mm, i don't think so you should check that one out i think you'd like it 
Um, but yeah, I love those movies. I like Pale Rider too a lot. Oh, Pale Rider, yeah. Pale Rider's very good. Um, but it, it's it has that like that troubling scene in it where like the there's like the the woman that like disrespects Clint Eastwood's character and then he like beats her and rapes her mm-hmm. and like that one scene I feel like is like it's like so out of place. Yeah. And it's like questionable like as to like why it's even there in the first place. Like, is it realistic? Probably. But does it need to be there? You know, like mm-hmm. what what is it adding? And why is your protagonist the one doing this? You know, is it just to show that like, um, you know, but like it's it. But on top of that, like you know, it 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 does tell like almost it almost does turn his character like the the whole movie. His character is almost like supernatural, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 the way of of how he does everything. Like it almost seems like he comes into this town just causes complete havoc and does some evil things but does you know others that are that are good for the people there and then just like uh you know it kind of like leaves and it's the way that whole story goes down is uh it's 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 a very interestingly told story you know mm-hmm, definitely and it, it brings up a great point about rape and westerns when i was watching tombstone last night within the first 10 minutes they rape a bride on her wedding day and kill her husband-to-be and it it sets the tone for just how evil uh this band of you know heathens is yeah and and then later in the film you see them uh talking in latin to each other so you you understand these are very well-educated white men from you know deep south uh and they they know that they're powerful and they're going to um you know act out their power whenever and wherever they want to and and on whoever they want to and it is interesting to see that it opened in that way because it sets the tone for like the true evil nature of the men and how they become so corrupted you know how could you come from being completely fluent in latin to just having no sense of morality whatsoever but also quoting bible quotes you know quoting revelations and quoting all of these other other different things about religion and you know trying to be a good man you know uh it really truly shows showed me anyway that the hypocrisy of christianity is generations deep it's not just in our generation the hypocrisy of christianity it's uh something that's been ingrained in that religious sect for a really long time what's interesting too is like so i i believe that scene is there because they're like they're they're setting the stage for who those people are so they're going to show them being funny they're going to show Mm -hmm. them um being friends they're going to show a lot of different aspects of them through the movie but they want to establish right off the bat that these guys are evil mm-hmm. and that's really interesting that pointing out the fact that like because they that they probably were very well educated too you can obviously tell like the guy that 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 runs the group powers booth is very smart you can tell that michael bean's character um johnny ringo is also extremely smart mm-hmm. um and probably the most evil out of all of them um, and you know, they, they're, they're as 
you know, you watch the scene with Billy Zane's character when they come and they, they do the whole thing in the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's such a interesting scene to me. You know, because you've got you've got all these people and you can see that the townspeople there too are close with this gang, you know, to the point of them having these philosophical conversations with them and, and everything, but like yep. they are evil and they will do th- that's their downfall is that they will do whatever they want whenever they want to do it because nobody was stopping them and putting them in their place for so long mm-hmm. enter Wyatt Earp and his brothers that's right so Tombstone is one of if not my most favorite modern western I love so many things about this movie I mean, Kurt, Kurt Russell is one of my favorite directors, you know, and I think he, he's done so many Westerns. He did this, he did The Hateful Eight, he did, um, Bone Tomahawk, mm-hmm. um, there's more out there, but those are like the, 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 the most recent great ones that he's done. And you've got Sam Elliott, who's done a massive amount of Westerns. Icon. Yeah. So yeah. tell me, what did you think of the movie? I loved it. And honestly, I can't believe that I'd never seen it before. I wonder if my mother kept me from watching it because my my parents aren't conservative, you know, by any means. Like they let us watch pretty much whatever we wanted to watch, but I do wonder if she stopped my sister and I from watching Tombstone because there was the rape in the first 10 minutes. I do not Be- remember there being a rape in the first 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> It, it's well it's implied you know it's not it's it's not like it's a graph it's implied it's not explicit yeah but i wonder when we were you know little girls riding our horses at 10 years old you know and we wanted to watch every western movie under the sun she did limit us which is why actually i didn't watch a lot of the clint eastwood movies or even john wayne for a long time like i was a i was a young adult by the time i started really watching a lot of these because yeah. i think I think my uh, parents were making sure that I, like, wasn't watching anything prematurely, you know, the true violence and, and uh, like, sexist and racist nature I mean, of, this movie can Western be, movies. as far as, like, Westerns go, it's one of the most well-made, um, but on the same token, it's also very brutal mm-hmm. at scenes. You know, there's a lot of blood in the movie, there's a lot of violence. And there's a lot of scenes that really do, I mean, the fact that, like, even even that opening scene, the fact that it's a wedding, mm-hmm. and they just killed the groom. And so many people died throughout this movie. So many. And, uh, yeah, it, it can be very brutal at parts. I saw that movie for the first time as a kid on Christmas Day. <laughs> I went over to my cousin's no. house, and they were watching it. <laughs> And so we used to go over to my cousin's house every year. And I remember I went over there and they were watching Tombstone. And I very vividly remember that. Another one that they watched when I went over there on Christmas Day once was uh, the first time I ever saw Braveheart. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I will say. I was a kid at the time. I had, I had watched. Uh, there was one Christmas where uh, a family friend came over to the house and really wanted to watch Law Abiding Citizen. And it was and it was <laughs> Christmas Eve. And I kept telling my family, no, like yeah. you do not want to watch this movie on Christmas Eve day. Yeah. Please 
I know what I'm talking about. I, I'm the only one in this house that's seen this movie. They would not listen to a single word I said. So what did we do? We sat down and watched Law Abiding Citizen on Christmas Eve. There's nothing Christmas about that movie either, No, no, within the first 3.5 seconds, the wife and daughter are brutally raped and murdered before Gerard Butler's eyes. Yeah. And he's knocked out, and then he wakes up and starts, you know, committing crimes against the rapists of his wife and daughter. Uh, And he he, you know, starts getting his revenge. Yeah. Because he was a law-abiding citizen. I'm just going to say, I didn't really like that movie. I don't think that's a good movie at all. No. Well, and it, truly, it didn't, you know, when he gets blown up in his prison cell, it's like, well, I would have actually liked it better if he had lived and just, like, you know, went and lived his life and forgot all about, you know, this traumatic life event that he's been through. And he he avenged and got revenge on his loved ones. And now he needs to put it all behind him. Well, I think that's the problem with that movie, is there's not really a good guy. You go into it thinking Gerard Butler is the good guy, and he's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And you go into it thinking uh, uh, Jamie Foxx is the bad guy, and he is for, like, most of the movie. But then he's, like, the hero at the end, and you're like, no, he was not a good guy either. Like, because if I remember correctly, like... It's his fault that these guys didn't go to jail, you know? Yeah. Because he was trying to put his career before ahead of, like, it or something. I don't know. I yeah, remember. I yeah. Know, but. When Gerard Butler uh, kills Jamie Foxx's character's, like, love interest at the police department, the, the pretty blonde, he, he blows her up in her car. That was the turning point. So, like, if he hadn't done that, yeah. Gerard Butler would have been the good guy. But he went and did that, and now he's the bad guy. Because now he's no better than the the people who raped and murdered his loved ones. So that's, like, the turning point. It's like, oh, he's let it go. You know, it, it, like, honestly, it's like, good for you. Go get your revenge. I'm all about it. Like, if, (laughs) like... Like honestly, if somebody did that to my family, oh, a hundred percent. Not only is like, that the I would point be, for his I character. would be, and I, and I I do wear that as a badge of honor. Like if someone like like raped and murdered my whole family, or you know brutally killed like my loved ones, I guarantee it. No way am I living like on this side of the law. Absolutely not. Like I'm going like full Rambo on these people. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that that is not only just a turning point for Gerard Butler's character. It's a turning point for that movie. I think that's probably the moment where the movie stops being good, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why did they have to write that in? They yeah. should have just let him... I don't know. Yeah, because it's not like they built There were other options either. there. Yeah. I don't know. Not a good movie. Um, If you want to see a good revenge tale, Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon. That's the one to watch. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So back to... <laughs> back to uh, Horses and... Tombstone. Tombstone. Del Kilmer, what's your thoughts on his Doc Holliday character? So, I think that that was so well acted. He's so fascinating in how he interacts with the other characters. And he is equal parts... You know, he plays it in a sad way because, of course, he's succumbing to tuberculosis and he's dying. Yeah. But at the same time, um, he does, you know, he he's so evil, but and but it's almost like he's insane. 
like he has mental health problems. Yes. Like it, it's not even that he's he. Of course he's evil, but he's evil because he is clearly a man who has had no one tell him no in his whole life. Like there's been no discipline there at all, and he's just like living on the edge and taking everybody that's close to him down with him because he knows that he's dying and he's like why not let's just let's just see what life has to bring me and i'm gonna be the most evil pos on the planet earth i didn't think he was that evil i mean i i i think he is because if you can sit and you know like murder people and like allow women to be raped and stuff like that to me is innately evil. Doc Holliday? Are are we talking about the same person? I don't think so. The handlebar mustache, like the handlebar mustache guy. So Doc Holliday, Val Kilmer, he's the one that's friends with Wyatt Earp, that is gambling the whole time and is sick the whole movie. Of tuberculosis. Yeah. He's in that first scene though. No, he's not. That's Johnny Ringo. Oh no! I think you might have just I, melded together Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday into and one character. I they kill each I, other at the end. Remember at the tree? Oh yeah. Okay. But I thought for sure he was at that at that table eating, and he's like standing there all pompous, like at the wedding. No, I'm pretty sure that's Johnny Ringo. I watched last night. I'm pretty sure he was there. He's not part of the gang, though. Yeah, well, he's, he's, so if we're talking about the, I don't know the name of the actor. That's why Val Kilmer is like. You don't know who Val Kilmer is? Mm-mm. Oh, my gosh. No, it's. He was Batman. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. In Batman Forever. Um, he was also. Uh, but in... he, so, so they're the two guys that do, like, the gun. With the, the twirling and the, cups. And, and then the twirling he's the cup. one. He's the one that twirls the cup. Got it. Okay, and he's, yeah, he's, like, hammered and drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... he's hammered the whole movie or sick. Yeah. And gambling with his, his girlfriend the whole time. Okay. And you're asking me if I think he's evil. Well, you were saying you thought he was evil. evil. Well, well, yeah, because I thought he was at that that table. No. He does so. kill quite a few people. Yeah, but he kills all the bad guys. And that he's really good friends with, the, with Wyatt and his two brothers. He is. Okay. Edit this all out, please. <laughs> well, because here's, here's, here's the thing. They all have handlebar mustaches. There is a whole lot of and handlebar they're all mustaches. Brunettes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why? So what do you think my opinion of him should be? Oh, well, so I'm just going to say that I think that Val, Kil- Val Kilmer's performance in this movie is Oscar-worthy. I think oh, it's yes, his sure. number one performance, and besides Wyatt Earp, he's probably my favorite character in the movie. Um, in fact, he's my favorite character in the movie. I'm just going to leave it at that. He's 100% my favorite character in the movie, because his character is dying the whole time, and he's basically, you know, who who knows, like, him and Wyatt Earp obviously have a history, but you don't know exactly what that is. You don't know how far it went. Wyatt Earp was obviously a lawman, and Doc Holliday, as we know from history, was on the other side of the law. But it seems like they had a good relationship about the whole thing. 
So it's interesting. He seems like he's just at the end of his life now. He's going to spend the rest of his days gambling and drinking with his girlfriend, traveling the West. And that's what he's going to do, drink. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody gets in a scuffle with him because they're like, oh, here's this famous guy. Um, he's also very obviously got tuberculosis. I'm going to get a name for myself by killing Doc Holliday. But despite all that, his character is still the fastest person in the room 10 out of 10 times and kills every one of those people that tries to tries to you know make that name for themselves. Yeah. So I think his character is acted extremely well. I think it's a very complex character and it's my favorite character of the movie. Mhm. And you see that quick wit and quick you know draw. Yeah. When the, the win at the gambling table and he kills, you know, shoots the guy, stabs the guy. And then the girlfriend takes all the money and they walk out yeah, with, yeah. Bandits with the cup. She drops the cup in there too. <laughs> or he drops the cup in there too. And then she takes the bag and they ride off. Yeah. Um, I'm your huckleberry. Yep. Let's grab the money and go. Yeah. Um, but he, and he's so gifted at cards. <laughs> you wonder, oh, is, was he cheating? Does he cheat? I don't know if you peeped it either, but Billy Bob Thornton is the guy that uh, Kurt Russell picks out of the one bar. He's 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 got a lot of weight on him in this movie. He's he's overweight in this movie um, because it was it was when he was way younger. The original um, gentleman that's kicked out of a saloon. Who's like the big baby? Yeah, yeah, the big baby and man. Makes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah, and like, he shows out. back up with like a sawed off, and then Doc Holliday comes in and like and like, like stops just... him from shooting Wyatt Earp in the back. Yep, and then Wyatt like drops the gun on yeah. the ground and just leaves. Bye. And then the guy says, "Thank you." Yeah. <laughs> and my, my favorite part's when as in like, "Thank you for not killing me for this." He's just like standing to the side while Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp are talking the whole time, and then like finally he turns to me, he's like, "You're still here." You're still... <laughs> Why have you not left yet? Oh, yep. I'm sorry. You can go now. <laughs> I love that. Movie. I want to watch that movie right now. Um. So yeah, that is probably my favorite western. I could watch that movie. Anytime somebody wants to put it on. I will watch it anytime that anyone puts it on. And I might put it on tonight. My other ones are True Grit. Uh, mm-hmm. Haley Steinfeld. Jeff Bridges. Mm-hmm. Barry Pepper. Um, guy that plays Thanos. Why can I not think of his name? Josh Brolin. Uh, great cast. Uh, I think Haley Steinfeld, she won some awards for that i think she might have won an oscar for yes it. i believe she's, she did and that was so i think it was that. her first movie ever it was and i love her music i think she's a fantastic singer and i've loved watching her career like even in you know when she's in pitch perfect and stuff i just think she's great i've never seen any of the pitch perfect movies <laughs> but i have seen hawkeye and she's good in that yes <laughs> She's good in Bumblebee, different too. Different genre, different yeah. genre. Have you seen Bumblebee, her and John Cena? Yes, yeah. I love that, too. Yeah, nice little rejuvenation of the uh, Transformers mm-hmm. uh, franchise. That should get a sequel. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed that. 310 to Yuma, it's great. Uh, the the So Christian Bale's in it. I think Christian Bale is one of my favorite actors. Um, everybody that's in it's doing great, though. Um the guy, his, the, the bad guy with the red beard, Ben Foster. Mm. He's so good. So good in that role. And I think the last, like, 20 minutes of this movie 
are so like thrilling like mm-hmm. it's literally like as they're running through the town shooting at each other and you yeah. just got to get them to the train that 20 minute scene is unbelievably good and i think that's what really makes the movie mm-hmm. absolutely um have you ever watched cowboys and aliens i have <laughs> what do you think of it <laughs> i don't think it's very good but it's entertaining yep it's it's like uh you know like transformers or alien meets daniel craig James yeah. Bond and but put him in a western. I'll tell a you, a lot's going on in that movie. So much is going on, <laughs> and like, our, like, so I was very excited about it because you got Harrison Ford, you got Daniel Craig, you got Walton Goggins in it, and Walton Goggins is one of my favorite actors too. Um, and I don't think it quite meets the standard that having the three of those actors in a movie together should be. But yeah. I've only, I've also only watched it once. Um, but yeah, I remember being pretty disappointed in it, but it's entertaining, I guess. But the more I think about it, the more I don't think I need it anymore. No, it was, it was a flop, (laughs) but it could have been great. It could have been. And they, you know what, you know, everybody's always remaking movies, remake that movie, you know, Mm -hmm. with the same cast. Just, just try it again. Yep. This time, just do a little bit better. Throw Jeff Bridges in there too. Mm And it, so, and it's, it's, it's cool because I think that, uh, you know, I think we need more Westerns. Uh, I think that some of these stories are being told in a very interesting way where now more than ever, you have the ability to tell stories where you can have more complex characters because we know so much more now. Um, I've also, and I've said this so many times on my podcast, we need some horror westerns that's what i need in my life i need a horror western the only good one i can think of is bone tomahawk um but i would love a western that was like hunting monsters in the west you know like let's like Mm -hmm. imagine walking dead in the west Wow. or like vampires um or you know, hunting like like mythological creatures, like in it, but it, but done in a way where it's not like fantastical, like Jonah Hex or something like that. Because mm-hmm. Jonah Hex is a bad movie. There's nothing redeeming about that movie. Um, have you seen that? No. It sucks. <laughs> it's Josh Brolin, Michael Fassbender, and Megan Fox, and it's a very mm-hmm. bad movie. It's one of the most poorly made movies I've ever seen. It's wow. Terrible. Watch the trailer for it. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's going to be bad. Yeah, <laughs> no, just kidding. No, no thanks. <laughs> um, it's based off a comic book, too, I believe. No, I don't believe. It definitely is. Yeah, I do like the idea of, like, werewolves in the West. Like, yeah. Packs of werewolves, but make them indigenous. Like, ancient indigenous werewolf clans in the West. And, you know, you could set it in modern times, but you could also go historical with it and make them, you know, live up in the mountains and have have whole communities. And maybe those are the communities that survive. And then you could fast forward to the future and, I don't know, it, maybe it would give us some, you know, a little bit of fantasy with our Westerns. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got so much, like, you've got, like, there's, there, there's so many ideas you can have, like witches... Mm-hmm. Um, undead, Wendigos. Um, you could even you could even like literally have episodes where it's just like bears or something, you know? Yeah. Like, but like you know, like like 
just more horror in the West. I think it's a genre that's being completely ne- neglected right now, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've made video games off of it, so I just, they've got, uh, um, what's that, that new game that's that's been doing pretty well? Um, I don't know. I don't actually play video games. Feel bad even admitting it, but it's okay. Um, Red Dead Redemption has an undead nightmare version, where you're traveling the West killing zombies, and it's super fun. Uh, there was just a Kickstarter campaign that I was a part of for this game called Zombicide that made literally millions of dollars off of both. And it's all about, it's called Undead or Alive. And that's all about hunting zombies in the West. Like, so that, so there's, there's opportunity there for the, like, that's part of the genre to come in. Um, but I digress because I've, I've said all this before. Wow, cool. Yeah, I love that. I love zombie movies. I used to, I used to be a huge Walking Dead fan. And now, uh, I know it's based on comic books, which I have not read, but the moment that the tiger was introduced, and I forget what was, I, I, I got pretty far in the seasons, but the moment the tiger came out, I was like, I can't do this anymore, it's too far-fetched, even for me, and it's a movie, it's a TV show about zombies, um, so yeah, no, I was like, mm, this, yeah. I can't do this anymore. It's getting too stupid. That's pretty close to the turning point that for most people, like season like seven, I think. I want to say I, I I watched up to eight, but I I only watched them the last I think seven and eight because like I was bored on Netflix and like caught them like years later. But like only the first six seasons are good, and there are definitely some filler episodes even in those seasons. But like yeah. That show just, it like, eventually it just stopped being good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Somehow it, like, limped along for another bunch of seasons. And then a bunch of spinoff shows, too, but... Yeah. I've always said, too, with Walking Dead, uh, all of the zombies up north where I'm from would freeze. You would so think. in the winter, I, I don't think we'd have as much of an issue with zombies as, like where they're filming it near Atlanta, Georgia. Well, that's interesting. So winter was a big part of the comics, and it wasn't really a big part of the earlier shows. Um, but it, 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 that was a whole storyline in the comics. So are there any other any other good westerns that you've seen lately? Um, I wouldn't say lately. Um... Do you see The Harder They Fall on Netflix? Mm-mm. Very good. It's a. Uh, I think Jonathan Majors is is the star of it. Uh, Lakeith Stein, Lakeith Stanfield is in it. Uh, Idris Elba is the bad guy. Oh no kidding! I like him. Yeah, it was pretty good. I really enjoyed it. Um, honestly, the best western I've seen in years was Tombstone last night. I'm gonna have to rewatch it now that I uh, have heard you talk about it. But I Tombstone's so good. The cinematography and the choice of, you know, filming in the theater and you know, all that that, that symbolizes is pretty fascinating. Yeah. It's not just like your regular Western. They put some thought and energy into 
what they wanted to portray in that one. Yeah. It wasn't just like, you know, guns shooting and people dropping to the ground and horses running and stampedes happening. It was more, which was exciting. Yeah. And I do love that it's based on real people instead of just, you know, another story. Yeah. So thank you so much for uh, joining me for the episode today. I really appreciate it. A lot of good topics covered. I hope everybody else enjoyed the episode just as much as we did. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. I hope I explained all of my horse terminology and horse history and uh, love of film in the best way possible for an audience that has probably never even sat on top of a horse before. So. I haven't. <laughs> yeah so thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on awesome thanks for having me i appreciate it too this was fun